Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the safety of medical devices by examining the FDA's medical device clearance process. With me to discuss this topic is Dr. Diana Zuckerman. Welcome back, Diana. Thank you so much. Listeners of this podcast will recall that I interviewed Diana last December about the excessive use of antipsychotics in nursing homes. On background, medical devices, everything from tongue depressors to pacemakers, are regulated by the FDA. How competently the FDA regulates these has been questioned for several years, in part due to the substantial increase in product recalls in recent years. For example, certain hip implant devices. More specifically, this is a question of whether the FDA's 510K process that reviews or clears for the market, quote-unquote, medical devices, is adequate. In 2011, an IOM study of the topic reached the unanticipated and controversial conclusion that since, in part, 510K determines, quote-unquote, substantial equivalence only, that is, it does not evaluate device safety and effectiveness, the process should be scrapped and replaced. Again with me uh, to discuss uh, medical device or the FDA's medical device oversight is Dr. Diana Zuckerman, president of the National Research Center for Women and Families. Diana's bio, of course, is posted on the website. So with that, uh, let's begin. Uh, uh, Diana, the vast majority of medical devices, over 90%, are approved by the FDA via this, again, 510K process. So my question naturally to begin is, what does substantially equivalence or a substantially equivalent mean under 510K? Well, uh, just to, in case people are wondering why it has this ridiculous name, uh, it is named after the part of the law that created it. And in yet, 1976. In 1976. And in 1976, up till then, the FDA did not regulate medical devices. And of course, in those days, medical devices were not as ubiquitous as they are now, but there were still a lot of them and they were basically not regulated, and the reason why the FDA decided to regulate them, or actually uh, the Congress decided FDA should regulate them, was because of the tragedy that had happened with um, IUDs, and particularly the Dalcon Shield was a particular kind of intrauterine device that was supposed to prevent pregnancy, and did, but also could cause terrible infections uh, that could cause uh, permanent infertility and, in some cases, even death. death. So uh, the FDA's uh, regulatory history and history of being strengthened is actually almost always based on tragedy, and this was just one of the recent, more recent tragedies. In 1976, it was decided that, yes, the FDA should regulate uh, medical devices and that there were so many of them already on the market, thousands and thousands on the market, and they do uh, vary from tongue depressors to even artificial hearts. Uh, so it was decided that they wouldn't be regulated exactly the same way as drugs, that the simplest devices, the tongue depressors and the Band-Aids, are actually not regulated at all. So if you... These would be a class one. These are called class one. They're called low risk. But I think people would still be shocked to know that if you, David, or if I or anybody listening wants to start selling Band-Aids or crutches, you can pretty much do that. You can just start making them and start selling them, and the FDA will not need to know about it and will not uh, 
go to see how you're manufacturing them and are they actually safe. And um, you're kind of on your own and if your project, product ends up to be unsafe, of course it will be taken off the market eventually when somebody figures that out. But uh, fortunately that's worked out pretty well. People aren't making, you know, band-aids that are contaminated with bacteria, mm -hmm. usually. And so uh, that has worked out reasonably well. People are making crutches that don't break when you use them. So those simple, simpler, class one, low-risk devices are not regulated for the most part. Then there are two other classes, the class two, which are used to be called the moderate risk, Mm -hmm. Actually, FDA's changed the definition, and now they're calling the class two moderate or high risk, and the class three, which are the highest risk. And um, it was decided in 1976 that there were so many of the, even of these devices that it would be burdensome and not good for the public to have each one of them required to go through the same kind of rigorous testing that prescription drugs go through. So instead of saying, well, we need to have clinical trials and we need to have inspections, uh, all the things that keep our drugs safe, they didn't decide, they decided not to require them for the vast majority of devices that were already being used. But the way the law was written, it seemed that new devices coming up, you know, the brand new innovative devices would have to be tested in clinical trials. The manufacturer would have to show they were making them the way they're supposed to, and there'd be other kind of safeguards. But for the vast majority, which is actually now more than 95% of all devices that are regulated, not counting the Band-Aids, um, more than 95% go through this 510K process, which requires that the company prove to the FDA that their uh, device is substantially equivalent to something already on the market, and generally it's to something that's already been on the market since before 1976. So what does substantially equivalent mean? Well, originally it meant made out of you know, the same kind of material or using this, the same kind of mechanism of action, how it works, for the same purpose. So for example, uh, if you had one contact lens uh, manufactured, then another company could come along and make a different kind of contact lens, and as long as it was substantially equivalent, they wouldn't have to have it tested in clinical trials. Uh, same thing for contact lens solution, which is actually also considered a medical device. Um, I think that some people would be surprised by that, that contact lenses aren't actually tested in clinical trials, but they're not. Uh, but also hip replacements and knee replacements and shoulder replacements. Uh, in fact, many kind of implants that really are very serious surgeries where people's lives to some extent might depend on it if a person uh, is going to either be able to walk or not walk, for example, or could die during surgery if there's a problem with the implant. Um, or have to have additional surgery if the implant doesn't work. Those are all considered moderate risk devices. They're going through the 510K process and they have not been tested in clinical trials and they have not been inspected. There is uh, another uh, 
clearance approval process called PMA. Uh, that does require substantially more uh, from the manufacturer, but we'll leave that aside for the moment since, as you say, I noted 90, you say 95 plus percent are through 510K. So based on that, let me ask you, of course, the most substantive question in all this is based on this clearance process, what assurance does the public have that medical devices are safe? Well, uh, some people would argue that they really don't. And in fact, the Institute of Medicine came out with a report that said because the 510K process only asks, is this device substantially equivalent to something else on the market, and that something else on the market hasn't been tested to make sure it's safe and effective, really there is no proof that this device is either safe or effective. Now, the FDA disagrees. They say, we're looking at scientific evidence, and there's plenty of scientific evidence, and even if it's not clinical trials, which is testing in human beings, even if it's testing in the laboratory, uh, using engineering tests or some other kind of test, those are scientific tests. But they do ignore the fact that they're scientific tests to show that the product's similar to another product on the market. They aren't scientific tests to show that they're safe or effective. And the GAO drew that conclusion as well, and there have been court decisions to say that the 510K process, because it's just about substantial equivalence, does not say anything intentionally in the review of safety and effectiveness. So let me ask you, um, then, you had a report out uh, just prior to the July IOM report, July 2011. Uh, your report was published um, in the Archives of Internal Medicine, uh, just again prior. Uh, you showed that most high-risk recalls uh, in the recent past were cleared via, again, the 510K process. You argue in the Archives article uh, that the clearance process is not working because it's, in part at least, an FDA funding matter. Can you explain that? Well, first of all, let me say that we, we defined a high-risk recall just by looking at what the FDA said. We didn't make this up. The FDA said, these are our high-risk recalls, and we define high-risk as this can cause death or permanent serious harm. And so the vast majority of recalls that FDA does are not high-risk recalls. Most of them are either moderate or, in some cases, low-risk. Uh, again, I think people would be surprised to know that hip recalls, even the metal-on-metal metal hip recalls that have been in the news so much, where people are having metals, potentially carcinogenic metals, in their bodies and have to have surgery to have their implants taken out and then have to have them replaced, and some people have literally died during these surgeries or almost died, that's considered a moderate risk recall. That's not considered high risk. So don't even ask me how that definition was decided by the FDA. But we looked at the high risk recalls, these highest risk recalls. Um, the vast majority had gone through the 510K process. They had not been tested uh, to see if they're safe or effective. And they had not been inspected. And it was interesting, um, device manufacturers complained about our study and protested 
vehemently at, at several congressional hearings. Right. Just subsequent to the publication, yes. there was a congressional hearing there in which were, you testified. Yes. Yeah. There were actually about five congressional hearings. Interestingly, we were not invited to testify at four of them. We were only invited to testify at one of them. So they are criticizing our study, but we're not there to talk about it. Anyway, um, they were saying, well, some of these recalls, you know, it's not really a problem of the product. It's a problem of the manufacturing of the product. And I would say, as a patient, what difference does that make? If your hip doesn't work and you have to get it taken out, do you really care if it's a design flaw that should have been caught in clinical trials, but there were no clinical trials, or a manufacturing flaw where it was not made correctly? So we didn't look at what kind of recall it was. We just looked at a high-risk recall and we found that uh, over a five-year period, there were 112 um, uh, high-risk recalls, and that translated to about 112 million, million devices that were taken off the market uh, because of the recalls. And that's a lot of people that can be influenced by 112 million uh, recalled devices. And in fact, uh, since then, in the two years since then, the numbers have been much higher, more like a half a billion devices that have been recalled, sometimes pretty simple devices like um, some kind of uh, pad that's used uh, to clean a wound that was contaminated with bacteria that ended up killing uh, a young child, um, or in other cases, gl glucose test strips that are used uh, to test for sugar levels for diabetes. If those glucose test strips are inaccurate, which is what they found for millions of them, um, anybody using them and then getting uh, their medication, uh, their insulin or other medication as a result of this level, if the level's wrong, that they could die from getting the wrong level of uh, medication as a result of an incorrect mm -hmm. test. So these can be life-threatening, and there's uh, millions of them, and yet uh, the FDA has continued to defend this 510K process. Um, and the one thing that I want to emphasize is that the standards of what is substantially equivalent have loosened and lowered in the three decades since. And while at first they had to be the same material or the same uh, use or virtually identical uh, uh, mechanism of action, they don't have to be anymore. And I'll give you some photographs that you can show uh, to our listeners. <clears throat> These uh, devices sometimes have no resemblance to the device they're supposed to be substantially equivalent to. They're made out of different materials, even if they're implanted in the human body where the body might react very differently. They're completely different shapes. Sometimes, you know, one's as large as a bed and the next one is four inches long. I mean, these things are not what a normal person would consider even remotely similar, let alone substantially equivalent. Let me, let me go back or let me um, note again the, the funding issue. Again, in your report, you noted that this might be um, 
say, the overuse of the 510K priceless might be the result of funding because to, for the FDA to conduct a 510K process, it's, it's much more cost efficient than the more intensive PMA process. So the question then, is the FDA adequately funded, or are they more or less de facto forced to overuse the 510K? I think I repressed that question. And the reason is because although we have heard from people at the FDA uh, quietly that this is true, um, FDA officials deny it. The head of the Center for Devices, I just spoke with him last week, made it very clear that as far as he's concerned, they would never make a decision to clear a device through the 510K process in order to save money. They do it because they believe that the scientific evidence is clear. I don't know exactly what to say to that, except that the scientific evidence that the FDA is using is very frequently considered inadequate by public health officials, by medical officials. Um, most recently, we've talked to um, some very well-respected cardiologists about some of the heart implants that are going through the 510K process, and they're very upset about it and think it's ridiculous, if not um, tragic, to be having these kinds of decisions made. Um, and let me just tell you what the money situation is. In drugs, um, the largest drug companies, if they want to try to get a new drug approved, they have to pay about $2 million dollars to the FDA in what's called a user, user fee, fee. Um, in order to go through that process, which is time-consuming and a lot of work and resource-intensive. The FDA has to have a lot of different people looking at these applications. The applications are quite thorough. The uh, PMA process, which is the closest equivalent that the FDA has for devices, which also has clinical trials like drugs, which also has inspections like drugs, and which also, you know, has a pretty hefty amount of data to look at, the way drugs uh, do. Uh, the user fee for that is $200,000 for the largest company. So the same company, let's say Johnson & Johnson, which makes prescription drugs as well as devices, if they submit a new drug, they pay $2 million user fee. If they submit a new device, they pay about $200,000 user fee. And by the way, if they submit a 510K, they pay $5,000, $5,000, which obviously isn't very much money for any kind of thorough review by scientists about how safe and effective a product is. Let me, let me move on then to ask this. Again, the IOM report out was in 2011. Um, does, what's, what's been the generally the FDA's response since the report was published? And the FDA has said um, in response to the IOM and other criticisms, it's working to make their pre-market programs more predictable, consistent, transparent, and efficient, amongst other things. But what's your general sense in the past two years relative to how adequate or not the FDA has been in response? Well, um, prior to the Institute of Medicine report, the FDA was moving in the direction of improving the 510K process. They had come up with some uh, recommendations, some of which we agreed with, some of which we didn't. Uh, the ones we didn't, we generally thought had loopholes that were just too big. But they were all, I mean, let me say all improvements over what had been uh, 
done prior to that. They got a lot of opposition in industry, and remember this was happening 2008, 2009, 2010, at a time when the economy was bad. So there was also this pressure of, you're going to put us out of business if you make us study things. I, I mean, my feeling is, you know, if you want to make shirts or buttons, I don't care about inspecting them very much, but if you're making an implanted heart valve, you know, you better have enough resources to go through a whole complicated process of, of doing research to make sure it's safe. But at any rate, um, what happened was there was a tremendous pushback. The FDA backtracked and said, we're going to wait until the Institute of Medicine comes out with their recommendations. We're not going to uh, work on these more controversial proposals until we hear from them. So then the Institute of Medicine basically said, your 510K process cannot prove that a product is safe or effective, it doesn't make sense, and you should scrap it and replace it with something new and different. But they didn't give recommendations like, do this, don't do that, how about trying this, or anything like, if you're not going to scrap it right away, then you should do this and you should do that. Basically, the Institute of Medicine threw up their hands and said, you know, this is broken, this doesn't make sense, and we're not even going to come up with recommendations to fix it. The FDA said, well, if you're not going to make recommendations on how to fix it, and we're not going to scrap it, I guess we just won't do anything, and that's what's happened. Uh, for the most part, um, all the improvements that were being considered, none of them uh, that the consumer and patient's who really care about public health. Um, none of those have really come to pass. Um, any changes that have been made have led to complaints by device companies, but have not resulted in what um, I, a public health person could say are noticeable improvements. Well, the, F, the IOM was critical on a number of fronts beyond 510K, the de novo process, post-marketing surveillance, et cetera. But let me just ask you, we have time for one final question, and that concerns the post-market surveillance. So concerning that, the FDA did put out a final rule on the quote-unquote unique device identifier, the UDI, that's been released. Uh, what is the identifier, and do you think it'll be effective? Uh, in a, in a, because one of the recommendations or issues was that the FDA is inadequate in post-market surveillance. Yes. And the, the classic example are the hip implants that yes. you noted. Yes. Well, remember that if you buy a toaster or a car, it has a unique number. And if something goes wrong, you'll get a notice saying, this has been recalled and this is what you need to do about it. You'd think we'd have things like that on hips and heart valves, but we don't. So, uh, a lot of people, myself included, have been talking about the need for unique identification numbers for more than 20 years. And for more than 20 years, everybody has agreed it's a good idea, but it has never happened. Finally, after Congress has passed two different laws saying, time to do this, uh, finally, a final rules has come out, and it's going to be done, but even so, it's going to be years it's going to be a few years before this is actually in place. But the idea is that if there's a recall um, of a particular company's hip, 
I want to know if I have that hip and what if I don't remember what kind of hip I have and what if my doctor has died or maybe he's on vacation for a few months or maybe he's retired how am I going to find out what I've got so if you have a unique number and you have a record of it and hopefully the hospital has a record of it then not only do you know whether this involves you and affects you it's also a great way to find out well are is the problem all of these types of hips all this model all the models of this hip or maybe there was a bad week you know a bad batch and one week uh, they messed this up and they've actually had that where you know in one company they had oil that was on hips and what happened was when they implanted these hips which had this thin veneer of oil on it that was apparently not noticeable none of these hips worked and it wasn't the model of the hip that was to blame it was the manufacturing during a short period of time so with a unique identifier you'd be able to know if people are having problems with this hip or this heart valve or this cardiac device or this knee or whatever it is um, or these glucose test strips is it because of they're all bad or just the ones made on particular days and we know who has those because they have unique numbers. So there is progress, let's just hope, at least in theory on that front. Right, it, but the progress is going to be a few years in coming and they're going to start out by uh, doing the priority ones which we agreed with and we've asked for which are implantable, life-saving or life-sustaining uh, devices mm -hmm. and later on they'll get to the ones that are not quite as crucial but it could be years and by the way although the law as uh, proposed by the FDA looks quite good it still has some loopholes in it like you know if if a manufacturer has uh, already got inventory they can continue to sell that hip or that heart valve for another three years even after the law uh, is in place which is by the way you know two years from now or three years from now Okay, thank you, uh, Dan. I'm sorry to say we're at our time boundary, so thank you again for your time. Thank you.